The scripture reading for this morning's word comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, entitled, The Benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought, a, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time, I want to call you now to give your full attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you so much, Pastor Jimmy. Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to bring us God's word here today in the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to our Father right now in prayer and asking for his illumination. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into your word, we pray that your word would go into our hearts and find good soil. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us ears of faith to hear these good words that you have for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are around 15 benedictions in the New Testament, and you'll find most of them at the end of the letters. And today we're going to be looking at the benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews. What is a benediction? A benediction is not a prayer. It is not praise. If praise is us blessing God, a benediction is God blessing us. If prayer is us speaking to God, a benediction is God speaking to us. The word benediction means good word. Again, this means God is speaking a good word to us. The the trajectory of prayer, it's from earth to heaven. The movement of praise is also from earth to heaven. The movement of a benediction, on the other hand, is from heaven to earth. And the general content of a benediction is the presence and goodness of God present with his people wherever they go. And this explains why benedictions and worship services, you will find them at the end of the worship service, Because it's not just about ending the worship service, it's about starting your week. If corporate worship, you can think about it as a banquet meal, the benediction is kind of like the to-go bag. We feast on Sundays when we gather together as the body of Christ. We feast in singing and confessing and hearing the word and praying. But corporate worship, it's a special kind of event, a special gathering that's only once a week, And you can't replicate that every other day of the week. So what about, what are we to do the other six days of the week? And so God's benediction at the end of the worship service, it's for you for the other six days of the week when we go out into the world. I would say that the benediction at the end of the worship service, it's more for Monday than it is for Sunday. And with this in mind, we're going to unpack the benediction here in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to understand its content and why it's so important we understand what it's saying. And we're going to begin with the first phrase of this benediction, now may the God of peace, the first point is this, the God of peace, and we need this, when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I think the recent Spider-Man movie, No Way Home, was so successful in part 
not only because it's this awesome superhero movie, but I believe because it's so in tune with the times. It's actually number four all time in box office earnings. I believe that it touched on topics of trauma and grief, something we all collectively experienced the past couple years. And in a time when we're so quick to vilify people, the movie made us pause and ask, why are people the way that they are? And where are they coming from? I left the theater thinking that of all the Marvel movies, this movie had the most flesh and blood. For me, it felt, it resonated on a human level in a way that the other Marvel movies have not. It was so very relatable. And I think one reason why it was so relatable for so many people was what kicks off the entire storyline. It's that Peter Parker wants things to go back to the way they were before. Don't we all want things to go back to the way they were before? We even added a word to our vernacular, pre-pandemic. And we say that and we long for things to go back to the way they were before. And it's not just the pandemic. Depending on what you're going through, you can add that prefix to all kinds of words. Pre-cancer, pre-diagnosis, pre-divorce, pre-accident. On a deeper level, what we're saying when we use that prefix pre and add it to any word, what we're saying and what we're recognizing is that on a deeper level, something is fundamentally wrong with this world and with our lives. Something is broken. Something is incomplete. Things are not whole. There's so much tension. There's so much hurt all around us. There's so much conflict between spouses, between political parties, between drivers on the freeway. And it's not just between people and political parties. It's even within. There's depression. There's anxiety. There's mental health. And there are many out there who experience conflict and tension even between their assigned gender and their experienced gender. And I can't imagine what that feels like at your core, not feeling any peace. We all long for things to be pre-something. But that's actually not the Bible's goal. The Bible's goal is not for things to go pre-pandemic. It's actually much bigger, and it goes much further than that. The Bible's goal is actually for things to be pre-fall. The reason why there are pandemics is because of what we call the fall, which is the reason why there's also cancer and miscarriages and infidelity and accidents and tsunamis and war. It's all because of the fall. It's because of sin, that when sin entered this world, it broke this world. It fractured this world. So the reason for all this brokenness and incompleteness and and wrongness about us is because this world is cursed. And this world is cursed because of sin, and we can't make things whole again. There is no Doctor Strange. There are no spells. But there is a God, and this is where God comes in, and this is the good word of this benediction that we just read, that God is the God of peace. This word peace means shalom. 
And it means more than just the absence of conflict. It means completeness and wholeness. And the point is this, is that God is the only one who can and will make all wrong things right and all broken things whole again. This was really important for the audience, the readers of this letter, the original audience, to hear. Because back in Hebrews 11, it talks about how, how some believers were even sawn in two. They were sawn in half. And so to mention the God of peace, it's them picturing a God who can even put bodies back together. God ultimately is a God of peace and will bring everything back together. He does that or he did that by sending Jesus. Jesus came to restore broken things. And the, the main thing that was broken and fractured because of sin in the fall is our relationship with God. Jesus came to bring peace between us and God, to restore that fractured relationship. And he did that by living a perfect life, obeying God's law, dying on the cross, taking the curse of sin upon himself, so that the very thing that was separating us, God's sin, is removed from the picture so that we can have peace and reconciliation with God. But it doesn't just end there, and it's so important that we as believers know, yes, that's the most important thing, but it's not the only thing that Jesus came to do. In his ministry, Jesus, he was casting out demons. He was raising the dead. He was calming the storm. He was healing the sick. And that's just a sample of the kind of peace and completeness Jesus would ultimately bring. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.10, he says that God's plan is to unite all things in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that God uses the word, or Paul uses the word, unite. He doesn't just say God is going to save all things or redeem all things. He said he's going to unite all things. He uses that language because this world is cursed and broken and fractured. But in Christ, everything will be made whole Again, and Jesus will unite all things in all of creation. This is a good word for us, that the God of peace will make everything right when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The next thing we see in this benediction is the author mentions the resurrection of Jesus, and we need to hear this when death and sickness seem to win. During the time of Hebrews, Christians, they were persecuted, they were dying. For a lot of us, for the past two years, we've been hearing so much about infection rates and total death numbers. There was probably a point this past two years where you thought more about your mortality than you ever have in your entire life. And on top of that, maybe in these past couple of years, you've lost loved ones, or your own health has taken a toll or has been declining. The good word in this benediction is that Jesus is risen. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this a good word? What does the resurrection mean for us? The first thing it means is this, that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted and it worked. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation. And they would wait with great anticipation. Is Aaron the high priest going to return? 
because only if he returns do they know that the sacrifice was accepted and it worked. Jesus offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice. How do we know if it worked and if it was accepted? Jesus came back. Jesus, our high priest, came back. He came back from the dead. He rose from the dead. This is how we know that our sins are forgiven and that we have peace with God. The resurrection also means this, that we too will rise from the dead. The Bible talks about how Jesus is the first fruit and the first fruit of the harvest lets the farmer know what the rest of the harvest is gonna look like, what it's gonna taste like. By our faith in Jesus, we are united to him spiritually. And so what he looks like is what we're gonna look like. Jesus is the first fruit. In John 14, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. Brothers and sisters, we too will rise from the dead and one day have glorious resurrected bodies just like Jesus Christ. Thirdly, what does the resurrection mean for us? It means we grieve, but with hope. Elizabeth Groves, she wrote a book called Grief Undone where she chronicles her journey as a wife and a mother through her husband's fight against cancer and eventual passing. Her husband, Al Groves, passed away at the age of 54 back in 2007. He was actually one of the professors at Westminster, Philadelphia, where I attended. And the whole family was there by his bedside the moment he passed away. And after he took his last breath, she later wrote about how they all broke out into tears, but they also broke out into smiles and hugs. She writes about how at that moment, they started to cheer him on, and they started to shout things like, you're home, you're free, run, run to Jesus, dad, go get him, dad. Run, you made it. They knew that sadness would set in soon, but at that moment, they knew where Algroves was, where their father was. She knew where her husband was, that he woke up and he saw Jesus face to face. As believers, we certainly grieve, and we may grieve our entire lives, but not as the world grieves because Jesus is risen. Revelation 1, 17 to 18 says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys to death. And to hold the keys means you have authority. Jesus has the authority to unlock death. And he will do so for all those who have placed their faith in him. And so this is a good word, this, this, this part of the benediction. When death and sickness seem to win, we have a risen Savior. The God of peace brought him again from the dead. Next in this benediction 
we hear that Jesus is the great shepherd. And we need to hear this when life is at its worst. The city of Jerusalem was surrounded by three different valleys, and so the original hearers of this letter, they were very familiar with what valleys were like. They were very dark, and they were very dangerous. They were a choice location for robbers to ambush travelers. For that reason, with this all in mind, the the author of Psalm 23, he describes seasons of great suffering and trial as walking through a valley of the shadow of death. And that phrase, shadow of death, it means deep darkness. It's descriptive of deep trials and suffering. And not just any kind of trials, it's those trials that ambush you, that blindside you, that come out of nowhere and they hit so hard that you didn't see that diagnosis coming, that infidelity, that bankruptcy, or that accident coming. And because this valley is so dark, you can't see in front of you. And that makes you so fearful of the future. What's going to happen to your business? What's going to happen to your health? What's going to happen to your relationships? Personally, I would say, although I've experienced many trials in my life, I've only been in the valley of the shadow of death maybe two times in my life. We've all been to doctor visits. I've been to the ER maybe once before. But I've never been in the ICU myself. And the valley of the shadow of death, it's not just a doctor's visit or a visit to the ER. It's the ICU. It's where believers are because they are hanging on for dear life. Their faith feels like it's about to dissolve and that they're at the end of themselves. And here is the good word of this benediction in Hebrews, for those of you who are in the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is your great shepherd. He is with you. His rod and staff will comfort you. He knows the way, and he will never leave you. As your great shepherd, Jesus doesn't just lead you to green pastures and still waters. It's so important that we as believers don't pit green pastures against dark valleys as if one is good and the other is bad. Psalm 23 talks about how Jesus, our great shepherd, leads us into paths of righteousness. These paths of righteousness include the still waters, but also the dark valleys, Paths of righteousness are not paths of easiness. These paths of righteousness are right in his eyes. They're righteous because they are good paths. They are sovereign, and they have a sovereign purpose for you in your life. A good purpose to produce righteousness in us. These paths may serve to discipline us, to train us, to teach us, but they are paths of righteousness, including the valleys as well. This is why the benediction says to equip you with everything good to do his will, that even the valleys are equipping you with good things to glorify God. And we can take great peace knowing that Jesus is our great shepherd. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. So if Jesus is leading you through a dark valley, it is not for dark purposes. It's for a righteous purpose, a sanctifying purpose, 
ultimately a good purpose. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all all, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This word world here that Paul uses, it does mean the entire world, but it also includes the broken, cursed parts of this world. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying, is that this broken, cursed world, all of it is yours. And some of you may be thinking, uh, thanks, God. Like, you're giving me this whole broken, cursed world. Imagine on your 16th birthday, your mom or your dad hands you the keys to a car. This car that's been sitting in the shed for decades. It's dirty. It doesn't even run. It's broken. And as a teen, you're probably thinking, uh, thanks, mom or dad. Like, why would I want this? It, it looks like junk. Who wants a broken car? But imagine that it's a, a 1965 Shelby Mustang. Even broken, it's worth a ton. And so when God is saying this world is yours, yes, it includes the broken parts, the cursed parts, but it's benefiting you in a way that you don't understand. Beyond your understanding, God can use this broken world to benefit you in his sovereign way. Paul says death is yours, this present is yours, even the future is yours. Everything you don't know is going to happen The good news and the bad news, the successes and failures, that's all yours. And you don't have to be anxious about the future. The future is yours. How is this all ours? Paul says, because you are Christ's. You are Christ's. And all of this is Christ's. And he is in control. And he is the great shepherd. And he is orchestrating all things. He owns everything, including the valley that you are in that belongs to Jesus. J.R.R. Tolkien, he was a linguistic genius. He invented 15 languages, and maybe the most popular is the Elvish language, which is in The Lord of the Rings. And there's a word he invented called catastrophe. And he coined this term for those storylines that turn from disaster into hope. So he took the word catastrophe and he added the Greek prefix you, which means good. And so this word means good catastrophe, which describes plots that appear to unravel into utter hopelessness for the main characters, but then suddenly turns for their good in the end. You catastrophe. Tolkien was also a Christian. And I'm sure he had the Christian storyline in mind when he came up with this word. Friends, the Christian life is a catastrophe. It is not catastrophe-free. I think we all know that very well. But it's not just a catastrophe. If you are a believer, you are in Christ, and Christ is yours. He is your great shepherd. Therefore, every catastrophe is actually a you catastrophe, when things appear to be unraveling into utter hopelessness in your life, because you are in Christ, things will turn out good in the end 
It doesn't mean things are going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But when you get to heaven, things will be made right and they will be good. We don't just have catastrophes, friends. We have these good catastrophes because Christ is our shepherd. The next thing we see, the next good word in this benediction is the eternal covenant. And this is a good word we need to hear when we are at our worst. Hosea 6.4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? This is God speaking to Israel. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. God is describing what his people's love is like towards him. They're like that, that morning cloud, and then in a few minutes, it's gone. And here's the good word in this benediction, is that God is unchanging. God's affection and his love is not like the morning cloud. He is unlike us. His love for us is constant, steadfast, and perfect. There's a Hebrew word called hesed, which means covenant love. And this word hesed, it's used in Psalm 23 when he says that the Lord's goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. That word mercy is hesed. The Lord's hesed will follow me all of the days of my life. And that word follow in Psalm 23, it's more than just following someone. It's more than just ducklings following its mother. It's more like a, a lion pursuing its prey. That word follow actually means to chase or to pursue or even to hunt down. And so the psalmist is saying that the Lord's faithful covenant love and goodness will always hunt him down and chase him down and pursue him no matter where he goes or what he does. And that's comforting. Especially when we're at our worst. Especially when we're straying and wandering from the Lord. We're living in sin. We are unrepentant. God pursues us. He chases us. We see what this looks like in the story of Hosea. Gomer, Hosea's unfaithful wife, eventually left him to be with her other lovers. And God tells Hosea to go after Gomer to chase her, to hunt her down, to pursue her, not punish her, and to also pay the price for her redemption. Hosea pursued her. He found her. And not only that, he had to pay 15 shekels in order to redeem her. But that wasn't the end of it. That wasn't even the hardest part of it. It wasn't just finding her and then paying the fine. God says, go again and love her. Love a woman who is loved by another man. Treat her like she is your wife. This is the love of God. This is the love that God has for his people. It's covenantal. It's hesed love. And it's not cheap. It's costly. This benediction says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That was the price for this covenant, to have this kind of pursuit, to have God always following us wherever we are. And it costs the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We see this kind of love, this hesed love, although that word isn't used in the New Testament as well, in the parable of the prodigal son. The best part, the most moving part in the parable of the prodigal son is when the son is walking home. He's hoping that the best case scenario, that he could be one of his father's servants. And the father, upon seeing his son in the distance, gets up and he runs to meet his son. And I would imagine that this is Hesed. This is pursuing, chasing, hunting down his son. And at that time, men didn't run. It wasn't something they did. And one reason is because it requires that the man, he would pull up his tunic to run, and that would expose his bare legs. And in that culture and at that time, that was so humiliating and undignified. One New Testament scholar, Kenneth Bailey, he also studied the culture at that time. And he explains that if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among Gentiles and tried to return back to the community, what the community would do, they would meet him outside of the town. They would break pots, symbolizing the broken relationship between him and the community, and they would reject him, and they would say, you are cut off from your people. The father ran ahead. You could say he outran everyone else in the community. He wanted to make sure he met his son first and accepted him before anyone else would speak words of rejection. He wanted to protect his son He wanted to make sure that his son would be able to return to the community. There were no broken pots. There were only slaughtered calves for a party to celebrate the return of the son. This is the love that our father has for us. He will outrun everyone else to meet us first, to greet us first when we return to him. He will embrace us and not reject us. And this is because Christ was rejected. This is because Christ was stripped and he was humiliated in the most undignified way on the cross, which was on a hill so that everyone could see this man crucified. God's words, his acceptance is greater than any other person's. His words are greater than Satan's accusations. And this is because of the eternal covenant that even when we are at our worst, we know that God in his loyal love will never let us go. And to close today, I want to encourage you to carry this benediction with you. I mentioned earlier the benediction is more for Monday than it is for Sunday. This is God's blessing for you as you face this broken, cursed world. Maybe tomorrow on Monday when things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, you need to be reminded that you have a God of peace. Maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday when sickness or death seem to be winning, you need to be reminded that Jesus was brought back from the dead and he is alive. On Thursday or Friday, when you are at your worst, you need to remember God's covenantal love for you. I started talking about, I started this sermon talking about Marvel movies, and so I'll I'll end with that as well. One good thing about Marvel movies is that they trained us to stay to the end. 
because we know that there's going to be that post-credit scene and we know it's worth waiting for. And that post-credit scene, it gives us something to hold on to until the next Marvel movie returns. Friends, I want to encourage you, always stay until the end. This benediction is worth it. And it's giving you truth and promises to hold on to to the next time we gather as God's people to feast. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your good words will give us hope and comfort in a broken and cursed world. Holy Spirit, help us to carry these words with us into this week and to face this cursed and broken world and not feel defeated or hopeless or lost. We thank you for your peace, for our shepherd Jesus Christ, for your covenantal love. We thank you, Father God, that you will always speak good words to us, no matter where we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.